This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Across the globe, millions of people have been displaced from their homes. How does the international community respond to these humanitarian crises? What is the role of education for displaced people? My guest today is Sarah Dryden-Peterson. She leads a research program that focuses on the connections between education and community development, specifically the role that education plays in building peaceful and participatory societies, particularly in conflict and post-conflict settings. She is concerned with the interplay between local experiences of children, families, and teachers, and the development and implementation of national and international policy. One of the most important questions, I think, in in refugee education that relates to how we think about um, global bodies working on these issues um, is trying to imagine what kinds of futures refugees are preparing for given this kind of uncertainty that we've talked about. Sarah has recently written an article entitled Refugee Education, Education for an Unknowable Future in a special issue of the journal Curriculum Inquiry that rethinks refugee education. Every day, policymakers, teachers, and kids need to make decisions about the curriculum that refugees will follow, the language in which they'll be taught, the kind of certification that they will receive, and the types of schools that in the end can prepare them for the uncertainty, for work, for life, in both the present and the future, as unknowable as that future might be. Sarah Dryden-Peterson is an associate professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She taught middle school in Boston, founded nonprofits in South Africa and Uganda, and has two school-age children. Sarah Dryden-Peterson, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks so much, Will. Thanks for having me. So can you describe the, the current state of refugees around the world right now? Of course. Um, I, we hear this word a lot these days, refugee. Um, and just before we started, I wanted to say a little word about this word. Um, some of the people I work with really embrace the term refugee and some reject it. Um, and I think as with all labels, it really depends on how we use it, how it's co-opted or um, in many cases employed to really disempower and exclude people. Um, when I use the term refugee, I'm really using it with the intent of hearkening back to this core idea of seeking refuge and sanctuary um, and belonging. Um, we know that the number of refugees globally right now is at the highest level um, in recorded history. Um, in 2016, there were a total of 22.5 million people living as refugees worldwide. Um, and in 2016, 3.4 million of those individuals were newly displaced to become refugees. So we also see an increase in the number of people becoming refugees. Um, at the same time, many people have lived as refugees in exile for many years, um, even many decades, for example, from conflicts in Afghanistan or Democratic Republic of Congo and Somalia. Um, I also think another really important dimension of thinking about the current state of refugees worldwide is that 84% of refugees live in exile in countries that neighbor their conflict-affected countries of origin. Um, so, for example, in 2016, 
um, more than 1.4 million um, primarily Afghan refugees lived in Pakistan and almost a million in Iran. We know that almost 3 million primarily Syrian refugees were living in Turkey and a million in Lebanon. Um, and almost a million primarily South Sudanese refugees living in Uganda and in Ethiopia. So while our media in North America and Europe can often have us believe that the refugee crisis is something that um, is happening where, where we are in North America and Europe, the reality is that most refugees um, live very close to their country of origin um, and often in host countries that are already overstretched in terms of providing education to citizens within within those countries. Okay, so there are more people at any time in history seeking refuge. There are, you know, most of the people, vast majority of these people are are in neighboring countries from where that where they are from. And and you're saying that people are being displaced for decades? That's right. Um in fact, the average length of exile is 17 years. Um, and when we think about this, it really is the whole span of a child's education. So whereas most individual refugees and families believe that they will quickly return to their country of origin and hope that that's the case, the reality is that most people will be displaced um, for many years. Um, and the uncertainty of that really affects the way we think about the situation of refugees, including um, how refugees are educated. Right. And, and I mean, so there must be refugees that, you know, when, when they are seeking refuge in countries, in neighboring countries, they're also, you know, having families and, just, you know, they're trying, they have to settle into a particular life for, I mean, 17 years is a huge amount of time. That's right. I mean, many of the refugee students and families that we have worked with in the Dab refugee camp in, in Kenya, for example, um, have, were born in, in Dadaab. Um, and so the kinds of rhetoric around, um, refugees going home, um, in reality, for many young people, um, a return to their parents' country of origin is um, a return to a place that they have never known. And, are you know, is home uh, a, a refugee camp or are they living in, you know, the cities and other places in, the, in these neighboring countries? Um, so, so both. Um, there, there continue to be um, refugee camps, but more than half of refugees live in urban areas. Um, and in many ways, this depends on um, the country of exile. There are some countries that have um, policies that refugees must live in camp settings. Um, but in many places, refugees are living in urban areas um, amid national populations and seeking access to the kinds of livelihoods that um, they had in their countries of origin. And I think this reflects also the urbanization of globally, um, so that many refugees are coming from cities um, and are going to cities as well in order to um, attempt to build their lives. And I think this comes back to the point that we were talking about before, that if exile is to be protracted, um, then it really is about building a life in the place where one is living. 
Um, and that includes being able to practice the kinds of um, occupations that people had before they fled into exile and being able to create the conditions in which they can um, educate their children um, and build toward a future much as that is uncertain. So the UN has a body that that works on or tries to help refugees. What what sort of solutions are they proposing for this massive issue, as you've explained? The UNHCR education strategy that began in 2012, and which I was involved with the drafting of, emphasized integrating refugees into national education systems. And this was a real shift from refugees being educated mostly in parallel systems. This integration really envisioned a pathway to the future that responded to the very lengthy exile that most refugees experiences. The policy has put in place some important structures, like the recognition of refugee children and young people within the national education space. Before this strategy was started, UNHCR had no formal relationships with national authorities in education in in refugee-hosting countries. By 2015, there there were relationships in 20 of the 25 largest refugee-hosting states. So this kind of formality and recognition that refugees are here and need to be considered in terms of what goes on with education in the nation-state. Now that this policy is in place, um, we are turning our attention to the ways in which refugee children and young people experience that policy. One of the most important questions, I think, in in refugee education that relates to how we think about um, global bodies working on these issues um, is trying to imagine what kinds of futures refugees are preparing for, given this kind of uncertainty that we've talked about. So the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which is UNHCR, the global body that you mentioned, has the mandate to um, provide assistance to refugees and to ensure their protection um, in exile. And UNHCR outlines three possible um, what are called durable solutions for refugees, this idea of um, a situation that could signal an end to the kind of persecution that led to flight um, in the first place. One durable solution is resettlement to a distant country. Um, so in, in the article, um, we see, um, Bauma Benjamin at the, the, the end being resettled, um, to Canada from Uganda, um, his country of origin being Democratic Republic of Congo. This resettlement option, um, is really only accessible to less than 1% of refugees globally. Um, but it is one possible durable solution that way. Um, a second durable solution being a return to the country of origin. Um, and a third possible durable solution being long-term integration in the host country. Um, and one of the things that, that I have been focusing on is how these possible pathways to the future or durable solutions really play out in terms of refugee education. Um, these three pathways in many ways are, are geographically bounded. So they focus on which nation state the future will be situated in. Um, what we find is that this 
approach that really focuses on the nation state doesn't always reflect the transnational ways in which refugees are seeking educational opportunities, seeking economic opportunities, and seeking social opportunities. So in our work, we've really been conceptualizing four pathways to the future, the three durable solutions that UNHCR outlines and a transnational pathway to the future. Um, and as we think about the, what this, what these pathways to the future really mean for a refugee child or a young person, um, trying to create their life. If we think about resettlement, this is a process where a refugee would leave one country of exile, having received asylum in that country, and then move to a more distant country, which is, in the case of resettlement, usually a country with um, a high gross national income per capita. Um, so it's usually countries in North America or in Europe. And this resettlement process comes with um, a kind of certainty that the other pathways to the future really don't. And in particular, it comes with a pathway to citizenship that is not available for most refugees globally. So in many ways, refugees will often perceive resettlement as the kind of ultimate future, especially in terms of educational possibilities for their children. Um, but as I mentioned, less than 1% of refugees are able to access resettlement. So another possible pathway to the future that is connected to the kind of solutions um, you mentioned is to prepare young people for a return to the country of origin. And historically, the purpose of refugee education has been aligned with this pathway to the future. So thinking about educating refugees so that they would be prepared to return to their country of origin um, after um, a time in exile. But I think what is critical about the situation we find ourselves in currently is that return to a country of origin is increasingly unlikely, especially in the short term. Um, so if we know that the length of exile is protracted, um, it means that we need to think differently about what education looks like in terms of pursuing this pathway um, to an eventual return, not an immediate return. Um, Sometimes education that imagines this future as a return to the country of origin could in fact place young people and children at a disadvantage by barring opportunities in the country of exile, um, a place where they may be for an extended amount of time. So lack of ability to communicate in the language um, in the country of exile or lack of understanding about the ways in which systems and structures work in that country. Um, in order to pursue um, various kinds of opportunities. Um, on, on the other hand, we often find that refugee children and families are seeking a real connection to their country of origin, even if they are displaced for an extended amount of time, um, to provide some kind of educational continuity with their previous experiences and also to stay connected um, through cultural and community linkages that way. Um, third possible pathway um, to the future is this kind of transnational um, situation that I mentioned. And I think unlike durable solutions that are premised on migration stopping, this pathway really centers on opportunities that could be created by continuous migration, which is often prompted by refugees' searches for long-term and stable um, 
opportunities. Um, and we see increasingly in um, conversations with refugee children and young people that they are imagining and planning for a transnational life, even if they don't know exactly what that um, would look like. Um, this idea of a transnational pathway in some ways can allow a middle ground of individuals being able to continue their attachment to their home community and country of origin, even when they're displaced in a country of exile. So indicating the need to maintain language and culture of the country of origin through education that could allow individuals to, um, to return, but leaving open other possibilities for um, uh, a transnational life. What we see as particularly challenging is, is that while in their envisionings, refugee children and young people may seek this kind of transnational pathway, in many situations, there are clear restrictions that bar refugees from moving from one place to another, um, or even within a country of exile, barred from work, from civil and political participation. So being able to imagine in the abstract um, a situation in which opportunities could be pursued in multiple places, but in fact, instead coming up with bars to that participation in all directions. And and literal bars, right? I mean, in some some of these refugee camps, for instance, I mean, there are fences and bars. And, you know, I'm thinking of, for instance, uh, Manus Island, which is where Australia is basically putting all of the people seeking refuge into their country. Um, and there's little, literal bars around these these camps where the refugees have to live. And so, you know, I would imagine that you know, imagining a transnational future would be rather challenging. That That's right. In many places around the world, we see refugees physically barred from entering into a national space or a transnational space. And in reality, having the clear message that um, their their future is, is nowhere. Um, for... Refugee education, um, I think that there is also a way in which we see these bars being erected somewhat more invisibly, um, but perhaps just as importantly. So the strategy of integrating refugees into national education systems um, has been a clear priority um, from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees since the 2012 to 2016 education strategy. Um, and what we see globally is this strategy being applied in different country contexts. So as where in 2011, um, there were very few countries in which refugees could go to a national school. Um, we now see the UNHCR having clear relationships with ministries of education in most of the um, nation states um, that are hosting refugees and, and refugees having some type of integration to a national system. So I just like to give some examples of that before going into what I think are some of the, um, the, the, the bars that refugees face, even if they're not literal bars. Um, so in research that um, we have been doing over the past several years, we really see three types of 
integration of refugees into national schools. The first is, in fact, no integration in situations um, where refugees are not um, permitted to attend schools that nationals attend and where we see refugees having a kind of parallel um, education. Um, so this is the case in um, Bangladesh, for example, and in Malaysia, where there are schools that are set up for refugees, but only for refugees. And in most cases, focused on imagining a pathway to the future that either is a return to the country of origin or a, a pathway toward a life outside of that country of exile. In situations where we do see refugees and nationals, um, both in national schools, there that's really split also. So in some countries, we see refugees integrated to a national system, so following the same national curriculum in the national language of instruction with access to the same exams um, that national students would write at the end of primary school and secondary school, but separated from nationals um, in terms of whether they actually see each other in the same classroom. And we see this separation being geographic in cases where there are refugee camps so in Kenya, for example, that refugees are following the Kenyan curriculum in English and Kiswahili, taking primary and secondary school leaving exams, um, but they are isolated for the most part in camp settings where there are only refugees um, in the schools. So we see that geographic separation despite the integration to the system. We also, in some cases, see a uh, temporal segregation of um, refugees, or separation of refugees, even um, despite the integration to the system. So in Lebanon, for example, there are two shifts where refugees attend an afternoon shift and nationals attend a morning shift. So they are following the same curriculum, usually with the same teachers, um, in the same language, with the same access to a process of examination, but they're not physically together um, in, in class. And then the third model of integration is where refugees and nationals are physically together in schools. Um, so we see this often in urban areas in places like Uganda and Ethiopia, um, as well as in a place like Egypt where Syrians are studying together with Egyptian nationals following the same curriculum with the same um, kinds, uh, with the same teachers. Um, and through this integration to the national system, I think has made visible some of the, um, the, the bars that refugees face that are not the physical bars. Um, so we see refugees accessing a national system of education, following the national curriculum, sitting in some cases side by side with national students, um, but not having the same kinds of opportunities outside of the school structure. So by that, I mean that refugee students will graduate from primary school or secondary school and then not have the right to work or not have the right to participate in the community, or not have a kind of permanence in that country of exile that would allow them to invest in, in starting a business or in um, creating that kind of livelihood. So I think that while the inclusion of refugees in national systems is an incredibly important message 
um, that tries to tear down some of those bars that we see globally. Um, there's also um, the kinds of bars that are erected through an experience that promises a kind of belonging and inclusion, um, but then a society in which refugees are struggling to be able to pursue the kinds of opportunities that they're seeking. So in in the, this second model of integration um, where they're, it's integrated but it's separated either geographically or temporally, why why are there why is there a separation i mean is it just simply practical reasons like they're geographically far away or is there other sort of underlying issues at play as well i think that there are three real reasons for thinking about integration of refugees into national schools um, and then that this model of um, these models of separation kind of play into that. So the first is that integration of refugees into a national education system can increase access to formal schooling. And this connects clearly to the global commitment to universal education with the Education for All Declaration, the Millennium Development Goals, and the Sustainable Development Goals, and thinking about already existing education systems, which refugees can access um, because they would be less likely to face the kind of common barriers of lack of access to school buildings or a limited number of teachers or a high per child cost that have been addressed through systems um, that would not be the case if parallel schools were set up for refugees. I think the second rationale for this integration is to increase the quality of refugee education, um, which is also a clear global goal. And the focus on quality, both for refugees and for nationals, I think really reflects this notion that the pathway to the future, be that economic, political, social, is really connected to the kinds of skills and capacities that children can learn and apply then no matter where that future would be. So the rationale then would be that refugee education could be of higher quality within a national system because there is an existing curriculum that can be followed, that there are trained teachers, and that there's a possibility of certification of some way of recognizing that education has been completed and that can be used as a signal to um, further education or employment. However, I think the challenge is that the quality of education within a national system can be low, as is the case in many refugee hosting countries. Um, and so, for example, if we take the case of Lebanon, um, less than 20% of Lebanese nationals access public schools in Lebanon. The, the real push in Lebanon is to include refugees within the national education system, within public schools. Um, and there are really clear reasons to think about how this could increase access to education for refugees, could provide some kind of stable continuity during a protracted exile, could provide access to certification and then there are real challenges related to the quality of education in an already existing system, let alone with an influx that has increased the population um, in schools serving refugees, sometimes by more than half. Um, and this is not a challenge that's unique to refugee education. And I think this is where it's useful to 
um, reframe our thinking about refugee education as not just about a particular population, but really as about uh, making visible the kinds of challenges that marginalized national populations are um, experiencing as well. And the, the third kind of rationale for integrating refugees into national schools is that it might enable a kind of belonging in the society of long-term exile, a feeling of security or connection and, and freedom from discrimination. But these models of integration that are really premised on a separation, um, what we find um, in Kenya, for example, is that students feel that connection to a national system and the kind of promise of trained teachers and sitting for national exams that then is in tension with their experience of being isolated in overcrowded classrooms, in places where there are no economic opportunities, and so they can't see their education leading into that. Um, and so on the one hand, this promise of um, belonging and long-term certainty through education, and on the other hand, this, this, this tension of an experience that actually sends a message of isolation um, and exclusion. So one of the things that I love about your work is that you're able to bring together these larger system structural issues of, of refugees and refugee education, but you also bring these issues to life by kind of in-depth um, looks at, at individuals and, and you know what what they had to go through. And, and one of the people we meet in your work is named uh, Bauma Benjamin. And what was his sort of pathways to the future, right? Like how did he imagine education working for his imagined future? One of the ways in which I think um, that my work has shifted over time um, and in some ways mirroring the ways in which I hope that thinking about refugee education is understanding long-term trajectories of individuals um, who are living in conflict settings. I feel like too often we're focused on one moment in time um, and are not able to see this, this longer-term trajectory. So um, you, you mentioned here um, Bauma Benjamin, who I write about in this article and really focus on because I think that his experience shed light on some of the, um, the bigger structural issues that we've just been talking about. Um, Bauma was born in Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, he did his teacher training um, in the DRC, um, but he was arrested for his human rights work. Um, and he fled to Uganda where he felt like there was no possibility to continue the kind of trajectory that he had been building as a teacher, as a husband, as an about-to-be father. Um, when he got to Uganda, um, he was sent to live in a refugee camp that was in an isolated area of the country where the theory of how refugees could subsist in this area was that that they could grow their own food and create a subsistence um, life. Um, he had never farmed before. So he was given a hoe and a piece of land to grow his own food, um, but he had no experience with that. Um, so he and his wife and their young child um, decided to move from the camp setting to the city 
in order to pursue his livelihood and what he describes as his real passion of teaching. And what he found when he got to Kampala was that there were thousands of refugee children who did not have the ability to go to school. And when he had been trained as a teacher in Democratic Republic of Congo, he had understood and really um, come to live this philosophy of if you arrive in the middle of a forest and all you have are trees and children, then it is your job to figure out a way to teach those children. Um, and this kind of metaphor made sense in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, where there were vast um, forests. When he got to, to Kampala, he described the city as his forest in that way, with these thousands of children who were unable to go to school, and it was his responsibility to figure out how they could get an education. I remember one day asking him, kind of, what, what's your goal for this school? Um, and he wrote down on a piece of paper, ensure for our children a basic education to prepare them for their future lives. Um, and I've kept that piece of paper that he wrote on. And I think that this, in some ways, this goal was a way for him to both look back to his own trajectory and look forward to his own children um, and his students' trajectories. And the way that he thought about preparing them for their future lives was really in thinking about the role that he could play as their teacher. And, and Bauma had this school in many different spaces. It was originally in someone's home. So the school couldn't start until everybody was up and out of the house. And then it was in the space of a church and then within a national Ugandan school. But every day as the children came to this school, no matter where it was, Bauma would look at them and think about the kind of future that he saw they might inherit if he didn't help them to think about how to create home and how to really cultivate the ways in which they might disrupt the exclusion that they were experiencing as refugees in Uganda. Every day the students would come to school and, and tell him and, and tell me um, as a researcher in this situation that they were called names, that their parents couldn't find jobs, that they had tried to go to Ugandan national schools but were not um, able to access them. And in many ways telling us stories about how they couldn't even imagine how to create their futures. A few of the ways in which Bauma acted as their teacher to work on helping them to imagine their futures was first to call every student by their name. And this may seem like a really simple, small element, but children who were called names that were not their own and not nice names in the street or who were not able to be recognized for who they were in terms of their identity, culturally, socially, linguistically, in a new place. Being called by their name um, had was filled with meaning. He also taught them both about peace, but also about war. And what we often see in refugee education is an avoidance of some of the really contentious issues because there is no easy resolution um, and there may be many 
conflicting sides to a particular conflict of kids and families within one school. But what Bauma saw was that these children who would come to his school every day were thinking about war because they had experienced it. And they were thinking about what their identities were and what the power structures around them were. And that avoidance of those topics was in fact teaching them that they had no power to act within them. Um, and so Bauma felt it his responsibility to help the children think through those issues, even if they caused contentious situations within the classroom, um, to, to work through them. He also included poor Ugandans who at that time did not have access to primary school in the school that he had started for refugees. And in that way, created a community where refugees and nationals who were both excluded in different ways could come together to build a learning community. And in many ways, it was that community of learning and a community of belonging that Bauma sought to create and was able to create and really show to the children and families that that they didn't have to live this life of uncertainty, but could in fact build um, a home and a future right there in that moment. And I think what was important about the work that he did was that um, it wasn't blind to the kinds of structural barriers that the, the refugee children and families would continue to face. Um, it wasn't blind to the fact that most would not have the opportunity um, to work, even if they graduated from school. And so trying to think through with them how they could create new opportunities and imagine what role they might play in trying to address some of the exclusion rather than isolating themselves from it. And as we think about education, this idea of an unknowable future um, shapes the way that we can think about um, and understand the quality of the options available. Um, I think the reality is that every day, policymakers, teachers, and kids need to make decisions about the curriculum that refugees will follow, the language in which they'll be taught, the kind of certification that they will receive, and the types of schools that in the end can prepare them for the uncertainty, for work, for life, in both the present and the future, as unknowable as that future might be. Well, Sarah Dryden-Peterson, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. I mean, it's just such a fascinating topic, and, and I just want to thank you for all the work you've been doing on it. Thanks so much, Will. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Sarah Dryden-Peterson is an associate professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Her article discussed in today's episode appears in the journal Curriculum Inquiry. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zhong. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.